Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by LionRock.life. I think it's a place that a lot of survivors have shame in either polarity. They often think to themselves, wow, I've really, I've extinguished my sexuality. I've lost that part of myself. I'm broken because it's not accessible to me and I don't want it to be, or I want it to be, but I don't know how it can be. So I just keep it over here in a box on the shelf, never to be looked at or spoken of again. And on the other side of that polarity, there are a lot of survivors who say, no, my sexuality is mine and I'm going to express it in this big, loud, bold way and have as much of it as I want. And the thing that both polarities have in common is both are an exercise in autonomy and control as a way to heal from an experience that feels so helpless, so powerless, and so out of control. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Your Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. Today on our expert episode, we have Dr. Kate Balistrieri. Dr. Balistrieri, PsyD, CSATS, is a licensed psychologist, certified sex therapist, certified sex addiction therapist, and PACT-3 trained couples therapist. Dr. Balistrieri earned her doctorate of clinical psychology from the Illinois School of Professional Psychology, Chicago, and completed her postdoctoral fellowship through the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine with a concentration in forensic psychology. Dr. Balistrieri is a passionate advocate for mental health, relational, and sexual health and wellness. Throughout her work, Dr. Balistrieri focuses on helping people build resilience and recovery from what ails them to move from a position of pain or discomfort to one of thriving holistically in their lives. As a sex-positive provider and human, Dr. Balistrieri is dedicated to helping people have a more expansive and integrated relationship with sex and has been featured in many other publications. She has two podcasts, one called Modern Intimacy, which is focused on sex, mental health, and relationships, and another called Without Consent, a true crime podcast deconstructing sexual violence. Both can be found on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Friends, this was such a fun expert episode. We talked about consent. We talked about who pleasure is for. We talked about whose responsibility it is when providing pleasure. We talked about a common path for sexual trauma recovery and what that looks like. And we talked about sober sex and the experiences of people coming into recovery and reclaiming their power in sexual relationships, what that might look like. We added lots of resources throughout this podcast and, of course, gave information for you to contact Dr. Balistrieri directly if you are interested in her work. I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I did. Without further ado, I give you Dr. Kate Balistrieri. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Dr. Balistrieri, thank you so much for being here. 
Thanks so much for having me. And tell me a little bit about how you got started in psychology. Psychology is a second career for me. And I used to sell employee benefit health packages, believe it or not. I really enjoyed that work, but I wanted something that was a little bit more artful and something that offered a bit more nuance if I was going to spend the next 40 years of my career doing it. So I decided to go back to school and change careers in my late 20s. In the field, I started working initially as a clinical and forensic psychologist and did a lot of work in prison systems with convicted sex offenders and non-sexually violent offenders and learned so much about the human condition in that space So when I eventually got a bit burnt out working in the prison systems, transitioned into other forensic work and then eventually private practice and really decided to re-specialize in working in, in an area that allowed for more sex positivity and allowed for a closer connection to the human experience. So working as a sex therapist for me has been all about renewal and integration and helping people create a relationship with thriving pleasure and abundance that feels really rewarding. I love that. I love that. And and I think it's such an important piece. You talked a bit about working with sex offenders and I want to ask you a little bit about that. When you were working with sex offenders and talking to them about things that had happened or things that they had done, what kind of revelations did you have about sex and all its forms and how you could be helpful in the world? I really appreciate that question. I think one of the things that stood out to me the most in working with sex offenders was the narrative that they had about sex was so undereducated, first of all. There was a lot of misinformation and a lot of knowledge that they really didn't have about sexuality and their their own relationship with sexuality. And the other thing that became so perfectly clear to me, although I know we talk about this in the world when we talk about sexual violence, the thing that became so crystal clear was that sex for them was a vehicle to communicate so many other needs. And that's true for most of us, but the underlying needs that they had usually reflected some incredible vulnerabilities and insecurities. So sex was less about pleasure and it was more about finding a connection to power through violence that took on the iteration of sex. So it was a really interesting paradigm to work in because when the small faction of them who did have big progressive movements in their therapy when they would have these revelations and be able to reposition sex as something that gave them access to their own vitality and creativity, but really pleasure without violence over someone else, they had a really different experience with sexual pleasure, sensual pleasure. And it was like seeing them reborn, honestly, as as new humans. And it was really rewarding work. One thing I've wondered, I, I, As I'm sure you have experienced, I've worked with so many people who, with addiction, with mental illness, who have been abused. I'm also a person who experienced early childhood sexual trauma. We spend so much time helping people who have sexual trauma because it's so prevalent and we spend so little time trying to prevent it other than us hiding our kids away or 
you know, looking around every corner or the comparison of what we do to try to prevent and what we do to try to help after the fact is really unequal. In your work with sex offenders, are there things that we could be doing on a communal level that would be helpful in making progress? Yes. I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to start by sort of a what's what might seem like a bit of a non sequitur for a second. There's this really amazing assessment tool that some couples therapists use called the Marital Social Justice Scale. And this whole assessment tool is based on the idea that our smallest social system is that of two people in relationship. And primarily in our culture, we look at marriage or partnership as one of the sources for the most number of two-person systems. So when we look at the way that we can address sex offenders and the rehabilitation of perpetrators and the prevention of sexual violence, we have to start by looking at our social systems and looking at the ways that we talk about power dynamics, the way that we talk about our worthiness as humans, and start by approaching those dynamics in non-sexually violent relationships. Because when we start to explore things like power and equity and equanimity in our romantic relationships, for example, we start to see that those are some of the places where a lot of power and equities are acted out unconsciously, sometimes consciously. In many of those romantic relationships, sexual violence can be a way that power disparities are enforced, maintained, and begetted. The other thing to note about sexual violence is that stranger danger is not really the place where we should be focusing our attention because perpetration so often and far more frequently happens when the assailant is known to the victim. And it is often a very long, grooming, predatory process before sexual violence ever happens. It sucks to think about it this way, but we really do need to look at our relatives, our friends, our neighbors, our teachers, our coaches, those are the folks that we should be the most concerned about because they have access to our children, they have access to us as adults. And it's the place where predation happens more often than this mythical strain, not mythical, but this less common stranger danger. Do you advise parents when you talk to them on things like not having sleepovers or are there things that very specifically you recommend as, you know, first line of defense, easy thing to do? Yeah, that's such a difficult place to be with parents because there are many benefits that come when kids have close friendships that include sleepovers with their friends. And there's a lot of bonding and socialization that happens there that really can't happen in other contexts. So I don't purport to believe that sleepovers are inherently good or bad. But what I talk to our parents about is how well do you know the other parents? What kinds of boundaries and safety conversations would you like to have with your children so that they know when something is inappropriate and feel comfortable coming to talk to you about it? How will you help be a safe harbor for those conversations so that they can preserve their friendships and not be ostracized in their social groups at school and yet still have a lot of protective boundaries in place? For some parents, that looks like really getting to know the parents, or it looks like 
I've even worked with some parents who have sleepovers in the sense that they will each rent their own hotel room and rent a hotel room for their kids. And so they're all there in space, but there aren't unsupervised adults or age-inappropriate folks hanging out with their kids. So that's one way that parents who are trying to have a more conscious approach to this can do it if they have the financial means. What is the prevalence of people who have experienced sexual trauma? It depends on the resource that you that you source for that information, but RAIN, which is the Rape and Incest National Network, RAIN is one of the, the go-to sources for statistics around sexual violence. They are citing something like one in three people socialized as women have been sexually abused in some way, shape, or form prior to the age of 18. And I think it's one in six people socialized as boys or men. The rates of incidents around sexual violence are exponentially higher for people of color and for folks in the LGBTQIA plus community. So again, folks who are in minority groups, folks who have lower positions of power are often victimized and chosen because they are seen as easier people to target. And you've done work on the healing process. So we do so much work on healing survivors, different types of EMDR. We really talk a lot in the mental health space about coming back from this, being a survivor. One thing that people don't talk about as much is part of that rehabilitation is learning to have a healthy sex life in some way, shape, or form. And that's something that you have this incredible background in, right? Because you've worked with both the offenders and the survivors and have this ability to help people come back from this unhealthy view uh, of what sexuality is. Can you talk to us about what that's been like and, and what your journey there has been? It's just such a beautiful experience to see people find a place of peace in their own bodies. And that peace can sometimes be the thing that is robbed from survivors of sexual violence. It is so painful to think about how to even get started in sex again, from a place of autonomy and a place of volition, when that very construct has been something that's been overpowered and challenged and consumed without your consent. So working with survivors is really, from my perspective, it's, it's a collaborative process of helping that survivor find their voice and find a place in their body again that feels not only safe, but comfortable. And from a place of safety and comfort, what feels pleasurable, what feels accessible in terms of expansion, what feels available in terms of creativity and growth and healing. Because when sexual trauma is something that someone is sitting with, sometimes sex can feel really scary, even if it is coming from a place of desire and consent and momentum in a person's life. It's a dance and it's it's one that I feel really honored to to be a part of with folks. I am also a survivor of sexual violence, so I, I really come into this work from a place of humility and a place of constant growth myself. I'm learning always where to deepen and how to deepen my relationship with sex in a way that feels truly empowered. I knew people who were survivors of sexual trauma and they put on a lot of weight. They tried to be unseen, make themselves unseen, make themselves small in space. And 
unattractive. And I don't mean like physically, I mean like literally like unseen by people and as little sexuality as possible. My response was to go the complete other direction and be as loud and in my space and try to recapture power by taking it. Neither one is really great. They're both just responses to, you know, those desires. However, they you often will see these two ends of the spectrum. Absolutely. I'm so glad you're you're bringing that up. I think it's a place that a lot of survivors have shame in either polarity. They often think to themselves, wow, I've really, I've extinguished my sexuality. I've lost that part of myself. I'm broken because it's not accessible to me and I don't want it to be, or I want it to be, but I don't know how it can be. So I just keep it over here in a box on the shelf, never to be looked at or spoken of again. And on the other side of that polarity, there are a lot of survivors who say, no, my sexuality is mine and I'm going to express it in this big, loud, bold way and have as much of it as I want. And the thing that both polarities have in common is both are an exercise in autonomy and control as a way to heal from an experience that feels so helpless, so powerless, and so out of control. So both are adaptations. They are both expected, typical adaptations. Neither is right or wrong, good or bad. And some folks choose to stay in those polarities for a longer period of time or even forever. And some folks choose to or find their way back to unconsciously more of a, a middle ground with their sexuality. What is the wreckage being done to people who experience some sort of sexual event where they cannot give true consent. And what I mean by this, and the reason I'm asking it with this, you know, dancing language is there's so many different types of sexual trauma that often, and my my experience is one of them, that often don't feel super traumatic at the time because you know this person and they're not that much older than you, or maybe they're in the same. So these things happen and there's a power dynamic you don't even sense or you've been groomed enough that you think you're an active participant. You don't understand. So what is the wreckage of these psyches being done in situations? And I, I guess I'm, you know, I'm asking you to be very broad here, but in the, in the broad sense of when these circumstances where consent is really not being applied to both parties. Such a great question. There are so many different impacts. I'm going to just run through a few different domains of our human experience that can and usually are impacted to varying degrees, depending on each person and, and their pre-trauma experience of themselves, where they are in their neurobiological development. Sexual trauma can change the way our brains develop, so it can have lifelong impediments depending on the age of the victim. It can change the way that our brain and body communicate. A lot of survivors will, especially if they experienced a significant amount of sexual trauma or even a one-time experience that was very intense, the amount of dissociation that, that can occur during that sexual experience or confusion can actually interrupt the somatosensory networks in their, between their brain and body from really being able to communicate. So a lot of survivors will experience numbness or a lack of sensation in their genitals or the parts of their bodies that were affected by the sexual trauma, even if it wasn't violent or aggressive trauma. And I think that's a big thing that a lot of folks don't understand. So much sexual abuse is not experienced as aggressive violence. It's experienced as something that was told to them as 
enjoyable, pleasurable, a positive secret, right? A lot of child sexual abusers are very good at getting the children to think it's a fun game. And for a lot of those children, they grow up later in life and that's when they have the reckoning of what happened to them. It can really create a lot of cognitive dissonance. It can change the way people think about themselves, other people, the relationships that they might have romantically and the world. It can change the way people engage socially, can interrupt their sense of security from an attachment perspective. It can change the way they trust friends even or employers or senses of authority in general. It can change people's relationship with food and with money because it ultimately can influence the sense of worth that people feel they have in this life. It can change their ability to function and provide for themselves. On the flip side, some survivors go head first into some sort of professional direction so that they can feel a sense of worthiness tied to their achievements or their financial status. Sexually, we've talked about that. It can create these polarities of hypersexuality or hyposexuality. It's normal for people to have fluctuations in their amount of desire as they go through life. But for survivors, it can feel incongruent with who they are and the kind of sex that they'd like to be having. It can change our relationship with spirituality. It can change people's relationship with parenting. A lot of survivors choose not to parent because it's way too scary. And they don't want the vulnerability that comes with that, or they don't want their body being taken over by a pregnancy. I know I'm leaving a whole lot out, but it is it is profound. And the experience of healing is such that it people can assimilate their experiences and have a lot of joy in life and have a really fruitful, rewarding life. But it may be that as they reach different milestones, they have to sort of re-experience that trauma and understand it in a new way or understand something about themselves in a new way. It's an interruptive process that is unfortunately often lifelong. Yeah, it sounds, sounds like it can do a whole hell of a lot of damage. There's a great book called the Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog and Other Notes by a Psychiatrist. And, and the book is, is, seems like you're familiar. It's, it's phenomenal. And it talks a lot about the different ages of when trauma happens and how that can affect the brain. And I remember reading that and, you know, it's really interesting how sexual trauma in their, in your twenties is so, I mean, just worlds away from sexual trauma at six. It's just not, your brain is just going to process it so differently and makes me wonder about how often we are changing what they end up wanting in a, in a partner or what they're sexually attracted to as a response or result of that rewiring. Yes. That question comes up so frequently in the work that I do with survivors because a lot of survivors have big feelings about the fact that their erotic orientation or their arousal template, the things that they find exciting include elements that were present during the sexually traumatic experience. And a lot of survivors have a lot of shame around that. A lot of survivors are shamed around that because a lot of folks will use that as an opportunity to victim blame. But the reality is our genitals don't always know the difference between what is consented sexual touch and what is non-consented sexual touch. Sometimes our genitals do. A lot of times they don't understand the difference, especially if it's not a violent or aggressive situation. 
So for a lot of folks, the experience of trauma can weave into their erotic template and that is not their fault. And there's nothing really they can do to prevent it because all of the experiences that we have as humans are fodder for what turns us on later in life. It's a part of why our erotic orientation can be very flexible and expansive, and we can learn to be interested and aroused by different things if we give ourselves that permission. But for some folks, their desire is more rigid or more fixed, and it may take a long time or may not really feel as possible to experience pleasure in different ways. So it's okay for people to find pleasure in things that once brought them pain. And that in and of itself can be a part of the healing process. They can find a sense of control and autonomy in that. This dynamic is happening, but I'm in control of it. In fact, a lot of folks will employ kink as a method of healing because in a healthy, ethical, kinky situation, all partners involved are communicating the scene. They're talking about boundaries. They have safe words. They honor each other's no's. And that process can be incredibly empowering in playing with some dynamics around feelings feeling overpowered, for example. How do you know when that process is empowering and when it is pathological? Great question. I just interviewed Dr. Holly Richmond on my podcast and she and I were talking about this very thing. I love what she said about it. She said, I often look at how somebody feels after they've had that Mm. exchange. Do they feel shameful? Do they feel guilty or like they've done something wrong? Do they feel like a bad person? And if the answer to that question is yes, then it might be a trauma reenactment or a trauma repetition. But if the answer to that question is no, it might be that they've experienced an empowered way to be in these kinds of dynamics and in a way that helps to build their sexual self-esteem and is a truly consented and pleasurable experience. Now, the extra variable that I would add in there is that a lot of people do feel really good about the sex they're having until someone else shames them for it. And so if that shame is coming from the outside, from, from a partner, from someone who's judging you when you share your fantasies, it's not intrinsic shame. I might argue that the problem is not what you like is pathological or that you're in a trauma repetition, but perhaps maybe you need to revisit at your friend group or your partner. So I have little boys, twin six-year-old boys, and we talk a lot about consent. And, and I feel strangely very underprepared to talk about consent. You know, I'm a 90s kid and how, what was acceptable and how we did things then and sort of what my palette is, is different and is different than what the norms are today. And I'm trying to get with the program, but there's stuff that you know, that isn't intuitive to me, to be honest. I've seen that there are lots of different ways to teach consent. And I'm curious what, when you talk about consent, how do you describe it? And what are the different variations or cues that you give people who may not feel like it's intuitive? That's a great question. Well, I just want to be clear. I don't, I don't specialize in working with kids. But when I work with parents of kids, I'm often talking with them about bodily autonomy boundaries being the place to start in teaching kids consent. So this is something that I learned both in my education, but really understood when I remember my own childhood. Like many people, I was one of those kids who was often encouraged to hug the elders in my family, hug your aunt or uncle, hug your grandparents, hug these people, give them a kiss. They're here. They want to see you. They want to say hi to you. And 
that is a great place to begin the conversation about consent with your kids because By not creating an opportunity for your kids to say no to that, you're teaching them that their body is in service of other people's needs and wants. And it actually creates more vulnerability for your children to be perpetrated against by the adults around them, whether in your family or not. Now, a lot of older family members or parents will say, no, 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 my family's safe or you should kiss grandma because she misses you and all the things. And that's culturally what we do. And I really appreciate that there are cultural norms around these behaviors, but just because something is a cultural norm doesn't mean it's good for our kids. And really looking at how to help our children understand that their body is theirs and they get to say who touches them and when or why. That's important. And it starts non-sexually. Work with the other adults in your family and talk to them and say, look, you know, we've learned something new about parenting and this is what we're doing. Please support us in this and honor our children's no if they say no. And we'll help generate other options for connection because we understand connection is important. So instead of giving grandma or grandpa a hug or a kiss if the child doesn't want to, can you give a a high five? Ask your child, would you like to give a high five or an elbow bump? Or would you like to show grandma or grandpa your favorite toy instead? Give them other options that promote different kinds of touch that they initiate and feel good about or the option of no touch at all so that they can really get clear around having to think about what they want in terms of a bodily exchange with another human being. Everything that we learn as kids starts in our family. And this is the great way to practice, even your, even with you as their parent, saying, is it okay if mommy or daddy gives you a hug right now? You don't want one? Okay. And being okay with that privately, dealing with the heartbreak of hearing a no. <laughs> right, right. right. Because yeah, that hurts to hear that your kid doesn't want a hug or a kiss in the moment. But those are the things that as parents, we have to model for our kids. Yes, yes, that's been an, an interesting thing is starting with not the non-sexual and, and and things that are culturally, I think we're used to a lot of cultural things that we don't realize have implications. Mm-hmm. There's a, a wheel of consent that talks about the different types of consent and what does that wheel entail? How does that, what does that look like? Yeah, Dr. Betty Martin created that wheel of consent and she's got a great book It talks about it and the name of the book is Escaping Me in This Moment. So please look up Dr. Betty Martin if anyone's listening. She's got some great YouTube videos that talk about the wheel of consent. So in essence, the wheel of consent looks at two axes, right? It looks at the direction of who is doing the sexual activity to the other person and who's receiving the pleasure. So if you think about four quadrants on this wheel of consent, the person doing the behavior is the person responsible for obtaining consent. And when somebody provides consent, they're providing consent for either the reception of their own pleasure or for the other person person to receive the pleasure that is happening in the doing of sexual behavior to another person. She looks at this in, in four quadrants and says, if someone Someone is doing something to another person and that person is also receiving the pleasure then they are taking and another person is allowing and if they are doing something to another person and that person is receiving the pleasure then they are providing a service 
and the other person is receiving the pleasure, right? They're accepting it. And so it's an interesting way to think about not only consent, but the reasons and the purpose that we are doing things with each other sexually and who benefits. And it's a really useful tool in talking about mutuality between two consenting adults, because I see this so often in practice. One partner says, I'm going to give you an orgasm. Well, first of all, we're responsible for our own pleasure. And even if someone is trying to give you an orgasm, if you're not allowing it, it's not going to happen in your body, except in cases of arousal non-concordance, where our body is kind of just reacting to stimulation, but our mind is saying no. But a lot of folks will say, it's my job to give you an orgasm. I want to give you an orgasm. I want you to have pleasure. But what they're really providing is the pleasure that they get. They're receiving the pleasure of knowing that they are competent in giving pleasure. And so it's not really about their partner receiving an orgasm. If somebody's trying to kind of push the issue, they're really making that person's orgasm about their own experience of pleasure. So it's an interesting paradigm to think about when you're talking about sex with your partner and how to kind of make sure that the pleasure that you're providing with one another and co-creating together is in fact mutual and not just the intention. When we talk about the wheel of consent and what you're describing is really around sort of an ongoing mutual consent relationship, how does consent fit in when you have the non-concordance, when you have, you're saying receiving pleasure, well, when the body is reacting from the stimulus without the brain being involved, how does that fit on the wheel? It doesn't because that's a non-consensual situation, right? So, okay. so that would look like if my brain is saying no, if my mind is saying, I don't want this and I'm not consenting to it, but my body's still responding, that's because the brain and the body are not communicating effectively and or a person is being overpowered. And so even though their brain is screaming no, there's not much they can do to align with that no in the body. But I think another useful acronym to remember is the FRIES model of consent. So FRIES stands for F, consent is freely given. Mm -hmm. So if someone cannot say no, then they cannot say yes, right? And that's where it's really important to look at power imbalances in relationships. The R stands for reversible. So if somebody cannot stop during sex, then their consent to be sexual is not valid, right? Someone has to be able to withdraw their consent at any point in order for it to be valid. Is their consent informed? Meaning, do they know what's actually happening? A great example of this is when folks engage in stealthing. So stealthing is when someone thinks that there is a condom being used, but in fact, the person with the penis has removed the condom and is engaging in condomless penetration. The person who is being penetrated thinks there's a condom on. That's what they've consented to. They have not consented to non-barrier penetration. So their consent is invalid. Doesn't mean anything. It's not informed. The E stands for enthusiastic, right? So it's a really big difference to be in a, a mental state of, I'm not really feeling sex right now, but I think it could be fun. I'm going to go do that. Yeah. Yeah, let's go do it. Maybe I'm going to get into it once we get started. And I know that about myself versus an obligatory position of sex. I have to be sexual with this person because if I'm not, they're going to pout or they're going to withdraw resources or they're going to hurt me or they're going to guilt me or shame me or be a real jerk for the next however many days. So I have to have sex with them or I'm going to be punished. That's not consenting. That is coercion. I think a lot of folks really 
get lost in that space relationally because there is a lot of messaging around what are our roles with each other as partners. But the last component of the Fry's model of consent is that consent is specific. I'm consenting to these specific things in this specific sexual experience. And next time we have sex, we have to go through the process of consent again. And then some couples have an opt-in or an opt-out model of consent that they might talk about or think about with each other. And for a lot of couples who are long-term partners, they might know, oh, my partner's really open to this. Yes, they love that. We should still be asking for consent in case something changes or be open to somebody opting out, right? Like in general, anal sex is something that we both enjoy. So it's on the table unless one of us says, no, I'm opting out today, right? So that's what an opt-out looks like. Opting in looks like, ooh, we're asking about every new thing because we don't really know each other and or that's just the agreement that we have. So today, is anal sex something that you're interested in? Yeah, I'm opting into that. Yeah. So it's it's two different ways to sort of think about how do you talk about consent with each other? Because some folks need that opt-in every time in order to feel like they can enthusiastically say yes. Other folks are like, no, here's what's on the menu. <laughs> feel free to enact any of those things so that we can be spontaneous together. But if I say no, then it's no. What are some of the things that you see with people who are getting sober and have not engaged in any sober sex before? And maybe they come with trauma, maybe not. But how? Uh, what are some of the ways that you work with people in those circumstances? Yeah, for newly sober folks, or even folks who have been sober for a long time, I tend to see a couple of themes that come up. Of course, there's all kinds of anxiety that whatever was happening during their addiction allowed them to not be aware of. So whether they were addicted to alcohol and that was disinhibiting or a different substance, or they have a different behavioral addiction, there's a lot of disinhibition that comes with addiction. So for a lot of people, when they get sober, there's a lot more vulnerability that they experience and a lot more anxiety they experience during sex that wasn't present when they were in their addiction. So there's that theme. The other thing that I see a lot of is that Sex is a lot less fun for people without the high of the substance or the high of the behavioral compulsion that they were engrossed in. And that can be a real buzzkill for them. Their erotic orientation or their arousal template became so fused with the adrenaline of their addiction that sober sex is something that just doesn't feel as interesting or as hot So they've got to take some time to learn how to build other interesting elements into their sex that are in alignment with what sobriety looks like for them. And that can sometimes take a little while and can be frustrating for people sometimes. When you talk about building things into people's sex lives, what what is that? mean? What what kind of things do you work with couples on or, or, you know, people who are building a better sex life? We're really organized around novelty being something that drives a lot of excitement for us as human beings. And that is true in our sexual experiences as well. So for a lot of folks who are in recovery, maybe novelty, but more importantly, dopamine, which novelty is a big driver of dopamine. So dopamine is a huge component of addiction. And for a lot of folks, the intensity that they experienced in the dopaminergic areas of their brains 
that's not available now that they're not engaging with a substance or a different kind of high intensity behavior that was a part of their addiction. So helping them become more expansive sexually, it really looks like helping them identify other aspects of novelty that are not a part of the ritual of their addiction so that they can have some dopaminergic elements brought back into their sex life. So that looks really different for different people. For a lot of folks, it's exploring something kinky. For a lot of people, it's creating a non, an ethically non-monogamous relationship so they can experience the novelty of new partnerships, but in a way that is ethical and transparent with all, the, all of their partners. So it's, it's really about helping people explore something novel, exciting, fun, and simultaneously helping folks to build a, a relationship with pleasure that is not intense so that they can expand their other captures of pleasure and enjoyment and sensory experiences that feel really exciting and, and fun. That's interesting. The, the intensity part that it doesn't, that you can find working on that. That makes a lot of sense. What is a common path in sexual recovery? When you say sexual recovery, do you mean recovery from compulsive or problematic sexual behavior? Or do you mean from sexual trauma or both? Let's go with both. <laughs> well, a, a path out of problematic sexual behavior, whether it's sexually violent or boundary violating behavior, or if it's compulsive behavior is really about education and learning about containment and redirecting those needs that are being expressed in the out-of-control behavior, learning how to articulate them differently in an assertive way, and really learning how to be more mutual sexually and non-sexually, and to address the underlying intrapsychic or, or individual experiences that are kind of compelling those boundary-crossing behaviors or out-of-control behaviors first. And then it's about learning how to redefine a relationship with pleasure. And for survivors, it's, it's kind of similar, but on the other side of the coin, right? It's learning about how to shore up boundaries, how to be discerning, how to be expressive, how to be trusting in yourself. Because unfortunately, we, we can't prevent all sexual violence. And survivors are often given that task indirectly and directly by people who know about their sexual trauma. It shows up in the form of victim blaming and shaming and all of that. At the end of the day, sexual violence occurs because someone's will was overtaken. And that is out of their control by definition. If they had any control, they would have stopped it, but they don't. So I, I don't like to really focus on what can people do to prevent, because there's very little that we can do to prevent. What we can do is educate ourselves. We can learn about power dynamics. We can educate ourselves about empowerment. We can educate ourselves about boundaries. From there, we can revisit the relationship we have with self and learn how to trust ourselves that even if things are painful, we are okay in our own skin and in relationships. So it's really about creating safer community and creating a relationship with self that feels more attuned. What is something that you want people to think about differently as it relates to sex? You know, that you would encourage people like, this is everybody, I want you to think about just food for thought. There are so many things coming to mind right now. I think one of the things that I really want people to understand about sexuality in our modern, modern world is that the experience of pleasure has been completely co-opted by our political structures and 
right now and at other times in our country's history and in world history, we've seen the policing of pleasure take place as a way of controlling different groups of people and maintaining that social hierarchy. The second thing that's very entrenched in that dynamic is that our relationship with sex is a huge part of our identity, regardless of what kind of sex we like or who we want to be sexual with or how frequently we're having sex. The way that we experience sexuality as a construct, as an idea, and as a set of behaviors is in large part how we formulate our understanding of who we are in this world. And it's so overcoupled with identity because that is how it is policed in our social structures. So we really would be well served to uncouple or decouple or disentangle, however you want to think about it. The relationship that we have with pleasure and the relationship that we have with the world and how we see ourselves in it. And when we start to deconstruct that, disentangle that, our experience of pleasure can be so much more rewarding, but we're no longer attaching our experience of pleasure with our social currency in the world. And instead, pleasure is no longer a task that has to get us into different groups or protect us from other groups. It becomes an experience that is more embodied and more holistic and much more spiritual. And I'm not talking about religion, but it's spiritual in the sense that it connects us to ourselves, to the earth, to the world, to other people. It becomes a transcendent experience that is really powerful. And our sense of peace in this world just gets a lot better. How does pornography play into all of this? Great question. I don't know that we have time to cover all of that, but what I will say about pornography is that there's nothing wrong or immoral with erotic material. But in a capitalist society, we have commodified sex. It is an exploitative industry in many, many cases, not all, but pornography is such a brilliant microcosm of the ways in which sex is controlled. And there is a conversation on who is pleasure for, who deserves pleasure, who has to endure to provide pleasure for other people. So when I consume pornography, I make sure that it is created from a feminist producer and director and that it is ethically produced. And that pornography to me feels really celebratory of sexual pleasure and inclusive of all people in that journey. And I try to make sure that I do not consume pornography that is not explicitly generated from a place of consent and high ethical nature and has a higher risk of exploitation. Where would one find pornography that was more ethical? Yeah, there's some really great websites for ethical porn. I'm a big fan of uh, Erica Lust. She's got fantastic material. And Dipsy is great for folks who like audio porn. It's really hot. And it is also, I believe, female founded and really organized around inclusivity and ethical production. There are a couple of other ones. Make Love Not Porn is a great resource. And there are a few more. You can Google ethical porn websites and a bunch will pop up. Oh, cool. Yeah, I've never heard of ethical porn. So that's amazing. Where can people find you? You have a couple podcasts that you do and in your work. If people want to get a hold of you and, and 
and the work that you've done, where can they find you? Probably the best place is our website. It's modernintimacy.com. And on Instagram, people can find me at The Modern Intimacy and also Dr. Kate Balistrieri. On TikTok, you can find us at Modern Intimacy and Dr. Kate Balistrieri. And I just started a Substack a couple of months ago, and I'm writing about these topics in more depth. So folks can find me there. You can look up Modern Intimacy or it's drkatebalistrieri.substack.com. We have paid subscriber options as well as free options. And then I do have a podcast, the Modern Intimacy Podcast. And that is a place where I definitely have some of these conversations as well. Awesome. You're amazing. Thank you so much for all the work and for coming on here and talking to me about this. I appreciate it. Thank you. This was such a wonderful conversation and I really appreciate having a place to talk and and being able to speak with you about it. Likewise. Thank you. Okay. What are your questions? What are my questions? What is sex? Where are babies come from? Okay. Where are babies come from? Where are babies come from? Where are babies come from? Okay, good. Got it. Writing that down. Why mommy, daddy? (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) You can tell we have small children. Yeah. Is that how you teach consent? Is that how I teach consent? That was way more complex than... The version that I have, I we have we do the thing with the hug and the high five. Okay, you we, do. We, okay, we, yeah, we haven't done the. I liked adding in. You want to show them a toy or something, you know, like mm-hmm, some other mm-hmm. non-physical thing. We don't. We haven't done that. But yeah, we'll like to be honest. Like with grandma and grandpa, we kind of do push it. We're just like, no, give them a hug. They're grandma and grandpa. They've bought you we've, thousands of dollars worth of I presents. Know. <laughs> I know we've done it too. I and my actually my dad is so. I mean, they they always for the most part it's not a problem. But like a couple of times, my kids have been like not interested in giving hugs, and mm-hmm. my dad is like, don't force them, Ashley. Yeah, and I'm like, oh my. God. God, he's more woke than I am. He's my boomer dad. Is like, God, don't you know bodily autonomy? I'm like, Shit. come on, dude. And I, and I, yeah, and I haven't said it out loud, but uh, what I just said literally was like, I mean, but if they do spend enough money on you, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I know, right? <laughs> Look not, at us. We so are great. really, that's <laughs> so great. Woo, we're going to have to reach. Well, thank God we had her on because totally. we clearly have some adjustments to make in our lives. Mm hmm. And we're, like, how you know, do we make things better except without <laughs> we don't want to make things better? Because that sounds hard. It sounds, sounds hard, hard and like it's going to be a whole thing when they yeah, like yeah. don't hug them and then they're going to uh, be upset and it's going to be yeah. a whole thing and they're going to be like, but I'm leaving yeah. and I don't live in town and exactly. blah, blah, blah. Like we want to do it, but like what's the easy way? You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? But what's the easy way though? I, I do like the high five. I hadn't yeah. thought of that. Also, can I show, like, can I tell my boys there's ethical porn? I think my husband might leave me if I even bring that up. But I also want to be like, is the porn from a feminist perspective? <laughs> like, I'm going to catch them watching porn and be like, okay. Let's talk about the director here. Who directed this? <laughs> where Where did she go to school? How's her mobility? <laughs> this actress, has she been promoted in the last six months? Mm, is she question. getting a cost of living wage you could th- you could hold up what's that test they have in movies where it's like do two female characters talk to each other not about a man have you heard you know this test absolutely don't know this really okay so this is a test and now you're going to start to notice it it's called the the bestial test and it basically is like to test what a woman's representation is in the movie and the test is pretty simple and it is just do two female characters talk to each other about something other than 
a guy or a romantic interest. And it is a really shockingly low number of movies. Come on, really? Yeah. I mean, I think things are getting better. But like, if you go back and revisit it, two girlfriends will talk to each other, but it'll be about a guy they're interested in, right? Come on. For real. It's shocking. And again, I I think this test has been around for a while. Interesting. This is going to sound cocky, but... Oh, boy. Oh Yeah, I know. Oh, Um, boy. I know, I know. I may have to, we'll see how it comes out. But (laughs) I sort of thought that it was understood that when a guy is like, I'm going to give you an orgasm, that that was obviously about him. Like I, I I thought, I thought that was like a known thing that we, that it was about that. Like if they're freaking out about it or whatever, that it's really about usually, usually about their feeling of incompetence. Or, mm-hmm. or or competence, you know, flip with whatever. But I thought that was, int- I was like, oh, I, yeah, I just sort of thought that was a given. Like, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know there was a community that wasn't aware that that's what was going on. I think of that in the same way that I do when somebody says, I got a funny story for you. And you're like, I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Right. Or someone. You'll or, know, you'll know if I laugh. That's yeah. how you'll know. I also thought it was interesting about how much your sexuality I mean, this is like really, I I get like straight white girl talk, but how much it really plays into, it informs so much of your life and all the other things in your, your identity and your sex goes to your sexuality goes like you were, it works back from how you feel about yourself, how you feel about others. Like we talked about the wiring that, and I liked the erotic template that she talks about. I I didn't have that language before things that happen to you or things you see or whatever curate kind of your erotic template starting very young. Without somebody to be able to put a voice to that, like how complicated that would feel internally where it's like, there's no control over the wiring or like what turns you on mm-hmm. or what you're yes. interested in or whatever. And yes. like how those things can be shaped by something that could feel like one of the most painful moments of your yeah. life. And then to be so, to feel so conflicted that it's like, why do I want that? Why, why is that part? But for her to be able to, I loved the the little indicator that she, you know, not that it was a hundred percent foolproof or whatever, but the idea that you can somewhat gauge based on how you feel afterwards, like, Okay. Like, was that something that I'm actually into or was that like... Did you flash back to situations? Situations. Google situations. Did you flash? Did you Google situations? I flashed back to situations where it's like, how did I feel? (laughs) Like, were you like, I shouldn't have done that? (laughs) (laughs) When she was like, well, how does it make you feel afterward? And I I was more thinking of like decisions and people Mm, where you're just mm, like, mm, mm, you know, mm. I really got caught up in this. (laughs) (laughs) I I like the word she used, momentum. I was like, I think there was a lot of momentum. That may have been missionary, but it was wrong. I used to joke with a friend of mine, we were joking, be like, do we really have to count that? It's like, a, <laughs> like, is that like what constitutes like a sexual part? Like, does mm. that, you know, like if it didn't feel in my head, you know, <laughs> do we have to count that? Just like an N.A. Can I put yeah. an N.A. next yeah, to it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, it's what do they do when you withdraw from a class? Oh, what is that right? The W like, yes. Uh, just the W. That's what it is. The W. And we don't mean a win. 
withdrawal. We mean a withdrawal. A withdrawal. You know? This was a redacted encounter. If we could (laughs) redact all of this. There it is. It was a redacted (laughs) encounter. It is top secret, black ops. (laughs) So basically, I'm a very healthy sexually person. Mm Mm-hmm. Very healthy sexually person. Yep. That's what I put on my profile. Oh, God. Very healthy sexually person looking. Who's also sexually healthy person. Yes. There's a fantastic book called Mating in Captivity by Esther Perel. And it talks about all the different types of relationship configurations that people come to. It is really, 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 really good. And I highly recommend it. And then also The Art of Receiving and Giving, The Wheel of Consent is the book by Betty Martin and Robin Dalzen. I guess what intrigues me about the whole conversation, generally speaking, is that people don't understand the prevalence of this stuff. And when you work in addiction and trauma and mental health, it's everyone, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's so many people are affected by these topics. I mean, just, just an overwhelming number of people experience sexual trauma, which means that an overwhelming number of people need to experience sexual recovery. And then you add in the perpetrators and you have this very big societal topic that is often sort of pushed away. And I always, I just find it fascinating that when 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 we get to talk about it, because I, it's such a big part of what I see as an underlying societal sickness that we have. It's just not, it's not the popular stuff to talk about. Yeah. Look up Modern Intimacy on TikTok or Instagram. Great, great content. Check it out. It, it applies to all of us and we can all be doing our part to make more healthy sexual choices and spaces for the next generation. So definitely check that out. We'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.